Hello, and welcome to The Freelancer Show, episode 247. Uh, today we have me, Philip Morgan, um, Jonathan Stark. Hello. Curtis McHale. Hello. And our special guest, James Stone. Hi, everyone. As far as I can tell, James, you are here to talk about, well, here's the title I gave it, uh, working how to work with designers without wanting to kill them. <laughs> is, is that pretty fair? <laughs> sure. Okay. So um, why don't we start with just a, you know, kind of the 30 second or 60 second version of your background and why, why you're here to tell us how to work more um, harmoniously with designers. Sure thing. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is James Stone. I'm a, design systems architect, and I work with fast-paced web teams to create systems that help streamline the web development production cycle. And typically, that means architecting the front end, building or consulting on front end code, and also creating sets of documentation and systems that help both designers and developers communicate better. Often, this is the form of templates, coding convention documents, living or coded style guides, for those that don't know, a living style guide is similar to the type of documentation that you might find for a large framework like Zerp Foundation, Bootstrap, UIKit, but it's in a form that's specific to your project and ends up being kind of a go-to reference for your team. And in addition to this, I'm also an award-winning web designer and top contributor to the open source Zerp Foundation front-end framework for the web. And I'm most well-known for my videos on YouTube, which I've had over 288,000 views. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also an adjunct professor at Penn State Schools of Visual Art, where I teach an online course on scripting that's for artists and designers. Uh, so that's that's pretty much who I am. How did you how did you end up doing this kind of work? Like, uh, you know, I, I think most people are familiar with the idea of a designer or some specialist designer who's focused on UI or user experience or something like that. How, how did you get into this gap between design and development? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I've probably had one of those. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind? Or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. between design and development? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I've probably had one of the most non-traditional career paths you could possibly have. And, you know, it, it even started when I was little. So my mother was a clinical microbiologist and my father was an RV salesman. And so <laughs> when I was a little guy, my mom's teaching me to program on like an old Atari computer and taking me to the lab and having me look through microscopes. And as you might imagine, you know, RV salesman is similar to a car salesman. My father was talking a lot more like humanist kind of aspects of the world. And so 
what happened is, is, you know, kind of programming turned into a career for me. I was self-taught. I started working at startups in Seattle, um, you know, just after high school. And then later on, um, I had a career shift. I went back to school and I studied art and design and I went all the way through to get an MFA and, and now I teach in the field. And so I've really been someone who's had a real deep interest in really both fields. And I actually really enjoy working kind of at the intersection with, with both designers and engineers. And I think what I enjoy the most is kind of the final result, everyone coming together and putting together like a really polished product. Like that's something that's very fulfilling for me. I'm curious about the, the RV salesman part, of course. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, what a, what a mix. Yeah. What, what sort of life insights uh, do you have that the child of a non RV salesman would not have? <laughs> yeah. Let me think. So um, I would say he was very driven by money and results and he was also someone who is very well read. So I don't think he was like the typical RV car salesman. He read all the classics and he was really into uh, experience. And he was actually an artist and a painter himself. Um, but I would say if you if you grew up and you didn't have a salesman for a father, um, probably you lived in a household that was uh, a little bit less volatile <laughs> in terms of income, unpredictability, uh -huh. and perhaps... Uh, less aggressive, crazy uh, things. So if you imagine like what it's like talking when you buy a car uh, with the salesman, uh, just imagine that your father is like that all the time and doesn't really turn it off, but also likes to paint and go to art museums. I, I don't know. I mean, mm. he use hey, dad, could I get the RV keys? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go out tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if he used any of those sales techniques on you to like um, kind of get you to do your chores or convince you to go to college or like those those typical you know struggles that some parents have with their kids yeah you know i think he actually tried every technique in the book i was certainly an angry angsty teenager and so i think everything from i'll buy you a car if you get your grades up which i did and then he didn't buy it for me so you have to remember <laughs> Never trust the car salesman. They say, you're saving money. We're losing money on the... My father said, they're never losing money on the deal, right? You don't have to worry about them losing money. They'll never sell you the car. Um, two, I'm going to send you to military school. And so, um, yeah, I think he was maybe reading self-help books and sales books, trying to figure out how to sell me on acting the way he would like. But, you know, teenagers, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm, big time. So, okay, so you've seen both sides, like both kind of ways of looking at the world, the the creative, the designer, not that developers are not creative, but, you know, the designer view and, and the developer view, how, how are they different? Like, what, what are the differences you see in those two worlds? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And and I've kind of walked both lines, and I often hang out in both departments. And And I would agree with you, you know, Developers and engineers are super creative people as well. So it's not about one person being more creative. But I've noticed a couple of things. Um, one is that both careers tend to, in general, attract specific kinds of personalities. And I would add that it tends, the, the designers and engineers tend to be in radically different personality groups. Now, there's sometimes outliers and in a mix there, 
but but generally you won't find designers and engineers hanging out in the same places and doing the same types of things because they have a different set of interests and a different personality. I think the other big difference is the way that they develop their career, right? And so, you know, I'm a little bit having a atypical background, but in general, people have an interest and then they start to pursue that or maybe they have a couple and they refine it. But most professional designers, as well as most professional engineers, have spent years and years honing their craft. I mean, they went to college, right? Maybe they studied computer science. They probably didn't take a lot of art classes or design classes. If they did, it was an elective and maybe one or two. And it's going to be the same case for artists and designers and most other creatives. And I think the other thing that kind of sets those two groups apart, and and this is especially true with the team dynamic, is they have a different agenda, right? So I think an engineering team is interested in like maybe the code maintainability, right? Doing code reviews, having that really clean. Things that I think perhaps other people in the company may not necessarily see, right? It's not so surface level. It's not so easy to see these things unless you're an engineer yourself. And on that same coin, designers tend to really value design for design's sake. So I've had experiences in the past where I've worked where a designer will be so caught up with their idea in a design that they'll just root for it and push it through no matter what the cost. And sometimes that ends up being a lot more engineering time to accomplish what is more or less the same thing. So they're often not so uh, receptive to cutting a small piece of the design or scaling it back if it's difficult to produce. But I would say the same thing about those teams, the, the, the similarity is that they both enjoy and they're both really solving problems. And I think that's really the commonality. You know, designers are solving the problem of the visual design, the experience and empathy of the user, ease of use. And engineers are solving the problem of scalability, maintainability of the code, and even just building out all of that business logic. Like this is they have to solve a lot of problems. And so problem solving, I think, is the commonality there. I think we can all agree the designers are really the problem here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because none of us do design. Yeah, yeah. kidding. Yeah. Totally kidding. Uh, I did design a little bit, but then I realized I was not a designer. So how did you realize that you weren't a designer? Because I looked at everything I did and it was terrible. It didn't match up with anywhere near with what I had envisioned and not even like, you know, you have some idealized idea picture, which you can draw if you're going to draw a tree and it's not quite close, but it just wasn't good. And I looked at it against like other current stuff and it just was not good. And so, yeah, it was not. And I, and I had, I struggled and struggled with it too. So I stopped saying I did design and I will take a design we have and like continue to extend it, but I need a framework to work off of. That's why I'm not a designer. Yeah, I have a similar story. I could take it one step further, which is that I don't care to get better at it. I don't care mm. enough about it to get better at it. And it, like I've tried, I think I don't know. It feels like when you, maybe it's just my generation, but coming up through computers as they sort of started to show up, and obviously design goes way beyond computers. But like my my everything was web design in my mind, web design, web development. So in that context, do, doing stuff on the computer as a little kid, it started out with making pictures, like making stuff move, animating things. It was all very visual. Um, and 
but it, it had a, a coding component as well, but you were trying to create, I was trying to create a visual output and the, as I got older and you know, I did, I did graphic design at like my only corporate drone job was doing like print catalog design in Quark Express. Yeah. You know, it's really page layout. It wasn't really design, but, and I just didn't, I just didn't, uh, personally just didn't care to get any better at it. Maybe it goes back to the personality types, James, that, that underlie what attracts people to one or the other. But I much preferred the kind of cold rationality of code it works or it doesn't work and maybe i can make it work a hundred different ways and there's some art to how i make it work but at the end of the day it either works or it doesn't so it's weird it's like a private creativity more than a public creativity and obviously all developers play D and designers never do so so there <laughs> yeah I mean, if we're going to paint in broad strokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say what, um, what, what are the problems that happen when developers and designers try to work together? I, I think we could all, we all have our own sort of personal story, but James, you're in this sort of, uh, position in the middle between them. What do you see from that perspective? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting uh, what you're talking about, Jonathan, that you you didn't care about it and you liked the rationality of uh, of the code and you liked how it was a little bit more private. And I think I mean, this is part of what happens when you throw engineers and designers together on teams, you know, in an academic environment. I teach a course and I actually have a fair number of, you know, computer science and SE people who take the course as well. Because they, they want to do something a little bit more creative with the code, right? They're maybe, you know, just getting started in computer science. And they're like, hey, this seems easy or fun. Or it's kind of, I'm kind of like the one art elective they might take. But what's interesting about it, so in when you, when you study design and when you get into that field, what happens is that you do a project, right? And then it's like serious competition because everyone puts everyone's project on the wall. And then there's this lengthy critique where you talk about the design at length. And so if you can imagine if you just threw together your code last minute the night before and it's all like spaghetti code and crazy, like maybe it works, but you probably wouldn't feel so comfortable having it up in front of the entire class and the professor <laughs> discussing at length your spaghetti code and how terrible it is. Right. So I think engineers aren't used to having things uh, exposed mm -hmm. on this like one to many <laughs> experience in the classroom and so they're uncomfortable with it and designers are more comfortable with it because they're they're used to having that experience and they're used to kind of like fighting a little bit for their ideas because they want to keep them and so the kinds of problems that that happen is one people aren't used to kind of showing their work that way right so i don't think that uh, engineers in general are comfortable showing their code right and in the case of like a web project if you're working with an engineering team like they don't really want to show a lot of iteration they kind of want to show the final product right they they want to maybe talk about their progress but they don't really want the design team <laughs> interfering or or discussing at length or figuring out the patterns and that kind of thing and and i think it's just kind of this culture in which you're being brought up i think the other thing too, like you're talking about the rationality of it, I think most 
And especially like if you get towards like a back end team, they are really focused on functionality, right? That is like king. They want it to function the, the way that it should, right? And they have a lot of other things they're trying to accomplish. And the design team can feel a little bit kind of touchy feely to that, right? Because like you're like, it's a button, they click on it, it does this. But the design team is trying to kind of empathize and get inside the head and really feel the persona of the person who's going to be using the product. And so I think to solve this problem, what you really need to do is to create kind of these intermediary steps between the two teams, right? I think it's a little bit too much and overwhelming to have all of that information, all this emotional state, all of these ideas being kind of just passed off to developers. And, and what I hear is often it's kind of towards the tail end, like they design everything and it's kind of thrown in the lap of the developers and they have to just mm. figure it out, right? Here it is, good luck. <laughs> and, and that's not really a great way to kind of have a good communication, right? Because you could solve a lot of problems in the, in the process. And at the same time, too, as you continue to work on a project and you go through these uh, cycles of updates and new user experience, it's important, too, to have this communication back and forth. And so that, that's something that I do. And there's this emerging field and this idea that you create these systems for design. So rather than just, you know, painting out what it's going to look like and just build it, you know, the, 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 I think the idea here is when people build a house or a building, right, it goes through this process. You know, maybe Frank Gehry does some sort of crazy scribble or crushes up some paper and he's like, this is it. But but that's not it. And then there's a team that goes and kind of creates designs and plans. And then they work with an engineering team to make sure that it's going to be stable and actually be built correctly. And then you create blueprints and then you actually go and build it much farther down the process. There's all these kind of intermediary steps. And I think what happens on web teams is they they come up with this like crazy crush paper and maybe go just slightly farther and then toss it over the wall to the people who are actually building it. But really what you need is like a set of blueprints. And so that's where I'm talking about design systems and creating living style guides and this type of documentation. It really helps to smooth that process. So instead of just building a website, you actually have a set of blueprints and a set of components, and you're really just assembling the components into, you know, your logic and business logic and backend. So it really solves those problems in an intermediary space where design and engineering can kind of interact and make better decisions. And then it makes it easier, actually, for both teams to understand what the product is and how to make changes later. I actually require, if I'm working with a designer, that I get to see stuff as it comes out. And so they, like, I'll see the drafts as it goes out to the client as well, so I can weigh in on, like, this feature is fine, but it's going to mean A, B, and C if you want to do it. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic and a type of input you really want to have early on because if you waited till the end mm. like you you could increase the budget yeah you know it, it's it's a little bit arbitrary but the budget can increase and it, and it may not necessarily have any sort of additional return on investment right and then they uh they, they can decide what is really useful right they can say well if it's going to cost that much let's not do that and sometimes often the designer doesn't like has no idea what it what it will take I've worked with a few that know just enough development um, that the, when I explain why something's going to be so much, they go, oh, okay, like we can't, you're right, we can't do that. That's a lot of work if we want that. And it's no, not a big enough benefit, but by and large, it's not. 
like they they don't know enough about development to really dive in and have a have an opinion i guess have an educated opinion on it so sp- yeah speaking I, of, oh go, go ahead. ahead yeah go i ahead. was gonna say speaking of speaking of benefits i'm imagining that that all of this sort of collaboration between design and development is happening in a commercial setting so it's not a i'm imagining that you don't coach people on how to increase the level of communication or the teamwork between these two groups of people for fun, like a weekend project. It's, this is someone who's got a business and has at least enough of a going concern that they have employed designers and developers, perhaps multiple. So there's some kind of business and there's some kind of business outcome and like where does the where does the business so like the, I feel like there's a component missing here or maybe you're implying it, which is that there are business goals involved in the collaboration. At the end of the day, that's the that's what gets everybody's salary paid. So where does that factor into the the equation for in it's sort of the process that you advocate? Yeah. So I, I think you're asking, like, what's the return on investment for people to uh, have their teams, design and uh, development teams working in a more streamlined fashion? Is that what you're asking? Not exactly. More like more like I mean, there there is that that exists. But my question is more like I, at what point does the does the design get evaluated in context of the benefit? the business benefit and not just the, you know, this is the best practice for typography on a site like this. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's related to what it's related to the ROI, but in the, I'm curious, more curious about the communication process. So in the communication process, it sounds like you're advocating and I agree that there should be more communication between developers and designers throughout the process, throughout a process, but you haven't mentioned the business at all. So I'm curious about the business people, where they factor in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a great thing to talk about, right? Who's who's in charge and what's going on. I mean, usually there's a product manager or a PM on the top of this. And I think that some of these things are not as easy to see, right? It's like having a car, right? And it's not tuned up and you've got a problem with the exhaust. It's still running, right? But if you were a race car driver, like when, if you're going to have an event, and it's important for it to be functioning correctly, then you have a problem. And so I think similar to that, when you do, sometimes they call it a UX heavy build out in, in normal terms, that is a redesign, right? Like a version 2.0, a version 3.0 of a site or an app. That's kind of re- really where the rubber meets the road. And companies do one of several things, right? They either hire an agency, they hire an outside design resource, or they have a design team And there's like this big ramp up of a project and there's usually a hard deadline that they're trying to hit, right, for for whatever reason. So they have to hit these milestones and they have to design it and implement it and they have a bunch of things they're trying to do all at once and it's a big change. So when you have an inefficient process and your team is not communicating well, whether that's working with an outside agency or you have an internal set of designers, What happens is that it's kind of like you can't really throw more developers in the mix, right? Like if things are going slow and you have miscommunication, like the answer isn't just to keep throwing developer after developer. Like 
you're going to have to throw a lot. Like you can't add, you know, if you have two developers, you can't add four and make double the progress out of nowhere, right? You have to, this ramp up time of communication, all this type of thing. So if, if you don't have some thought processes, you go into doing this, you're kind of in a bad position because it's hard to solve that problem while trying to hit a deadline, <laughs> right? So I think the problem is, is that with design, right? And you guys are kind of like, oh, the designers are the problem. But I think a lot of this is just the design being thrown over the wall. And what I've seen is is a lot of people do that, right? They want to wait till the designs are final and then like who knows what it's coming up with or then, you know, you can get a messy process. So there's all these different design files and then you have all these meetings to discuss what's different or you change things and things get out of sync so no one knows what's going on or the developer doesn't even know what something's supposed to do and so i think the real-time expense there that you can really feel and see is when the designers and the developers have to start going back and forth a lot to try and solve small problems and, and it's sometimes hard to see but it tends to be lots of meetings or, you know, like every company has got like a stand up meeting right <laughs> at the beginning mm -hmm. of the day. Ideally, they should be very short. Right. But I've been at companies where they start going on to half an hour. It's like an hour and a half. Like, I mean, that's crazy. That's a really large percentage of the day and it's terribly inefficient. And that's not to count all the meeting with other people throughout the day. And in some companies try to solve this problem by sitting the engineers and the designers together <laughs> right next to each other. Like as if walking no, five, five, 10, 15 steps is really the problem. And I don't think that solves a problem either because you also have different personality types and, and it kind of makes people uncomfortable. And the other thing I've seen people try is they try and say, well, all the designers need to learn to code. Right. <laughs> and oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, what does that even mean like a designer should learn to code and i think this is something like you see all over the internet and you see designers they're like i heard i should learn to code what do i do and i think that's not really the solution now if you have an aptitude and you want to kind of exist within a space like i am where you're really interested in taking designs and converting it into front-end code that's like really polished and, and looks and feels right and you have empathy for the user but also an emphasis on code quality that's a great space for you but but if not, I don't think you're going to necessarily be the best at it, because if you think about it, a designer is maybe being, you know, sent to like a one day class or something. And then they're expected to compete with people who have spent maybe 10 or 20 years of their life honing their craft. And I think the other thing with that is it's not about learning to code, but more about understanding some fundamental ways in which things are built. Right. And so. Other than some superstar architects, I think in general, architects have a pretty good understanding of engineering a building, right? They are not going to just design something really crazy that's not possible at all. Now, there's some outliers and edge cases, but I think that's what you're really looking for from your design team. Like they should understand like on the web, like the box model, how that really works, like how the components are actually being built. And I think that can really help to inform the design. And, and I've had the opportunity to work with some really talented designers, UI designers, and uh, visual designers that really fundamentally understand how the web is built, but they don't code, right? They're not coding their own sites. They're not doing their front end code. 
But it's so much easier to translate those designs into responsive websites and apps because they've thought about that whole process to begin with. Yeah, by that same token, I think developers should have a like at least a foundation knowledge of like what does good type look like, stuff like that, right? I was just going through my books as I moved offices and pulled out like an interface guidebook and a type guidebook and stuff. So you know, like when they talk about kerning, you're like, I know what that is. I couldn't necessarily pick good type, but I know what we're talking about at this point. So I think it should go both ways for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the- thing that drives me crazy is developers that just stuff in those sort of incomprehensible error messages that drives me insane it's like uh, <laughs> just just abusive error messages or or errant you know just like completely wrong message or um or nothing just like error <laughs> like that drives me nuts and that's not the kind of stuff that i mean that's the kind of stuff that usually falls through the cracks and i feel like it's on the developers a little bit to to either be you know take some pride in doing that and like realizing that this piece of text that you're typing into your code editor is going to be visible to actual end users or if you're completely clueless at least know that you're clueless and ask somebody from the design team to to tell you how you should phrase it or something yeah so i mean as far as design goes that's say that's what i at least shoot for right or some message where it says that shouldn't have happened. We've let people know, sorry, here's a link to contact support if you need help, as opposed to error 404, which is not useful to most people. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. as opposed to error 404, which is not useful to most people. Yeah, I I agree, you know, and and again, I'm not advocating that that developers should be sent off to design school, right? But but having just some sort of fundamental basic language for having communication, I think is really critical. And being able to kind of look at a design and see whoa, this type is really off, right? This is, we're not using Comic Sans here. We're using, you know, it wouldn't be Comic Sans, but, you know, we're not using Times New Roman. We're using, you know, uh, Proxima Nova, and we're using a specific font. And, and I've seen, I think you're talking about errors. This is the, this is like one of the things that falls through the cracks and that not just the message, but the way it's being displayed. And I think when you're working on like a high level uh, design and a high level product, when you have things come through that are not styled and not designed in the way that the rest of the app is, it it kind of goes off brand. And what that does is it makes it look broken or hacked. And that's probably the worst thing you can do. You've invested all this time to build out this app. You've invested all this time to have this great user experience. And then they get this pop up. Like it maybe looks like a virus to someone who's not educated. Like mm-hmm. it's not your design team, not your development team that are end users. 
And, you know, the other thing that I've noticed, too, is just color, right? And I'm not saying that does developers need to uh, learn color theory necessarily and know all this certain stuff, but they just need to use the the colors that are set by the designers and not kind of improvise. And I just recently went through a project and I found 108 different hard-coded hex color values in the CSS. Now, I'm not saying 108 instances. I'm talking about 108 different hard color or hard coded color values. And so I had to go through the process of, of cleaning all this up because it's just the farther you go into the app, the more off brand it is and the colors shift. And it, w- it was actually quite a bit of work even just to figure out what those colors were supposed to be. Like you get the color like FOO foods, kind of a, a programming <laughs> joke. Like, like they, they see a red sometimes, you know, and I'm a developer too. And I, I use this too. It's like funny. Right. And, you see a red, you're like, it's a red, F-O-O, right? But but it's not a red. Like, the designer actually spent a lot of time crafting a specific red for a specific reason. Like, that's a big problem that they solved. And so when you just make quick decisions like that, you're kind of undermining the, the team effort. Well, I think we can all agree the uh, developers are the real problem here. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, you mentioned... Um, some sort of infrastructure-like style guides, which, uh, so I'm curious how that's part of the solution. I'm also curious how that doesn't make things worse by sort of adding layers of abstraction or ways things can go wrong or, like, I'm coming at or this. Or yet another thing to maintain. Yeah, right, yeah. That's, uh, I'm coming at this from the, a sort of uneducated perspective about how those could add value. So I guess I'm saying sell us on it to say how that stuff adds value. Sure. So like if you just search Google for style guides, it's going to come up with a lot of broad stuff. And to be honest, it's a term that's maybe not the best term to be using. I don't know that there's a better one, but there's a big spectrum. Right. And so some style guides that designers are creating are more from the designer perspective and they look much more like brand guidelines. Now, Maybe you've seen these. It's like, here's the logo. It should have this much white space around it. This is the font. It's only used this way. Only these colors, that kind of thing. Now, I think that's an important thing to have as an organization. But for a website, and if you're working on a front end or back end team, it's really not that important these types of things because the logo is really there once and it's usually in a very specifically crafted way by the designers. So when I talk about a style guide, what I'm talking about is you've created front end code, you've created the CSS, usually through a preprocessor, so it's more maintainable. Um, and you've created kind of like a mini system that you can kind of create new pages and, and components that you put together. And so I think some of the examples of this might be like Bootstrap. If you look at their documentation, their components, you go and you click on the grid and it shows you here's how the grid works. And here's some HTML that you could use to create that grid. Here's how a button works. And this is the HTML that you use to get that button. So when I talk about a style guide, I'm talking about this. And I think Jonathan asked, well, what about maintaining it? Right. And and you hear a lot of people talking about, oh, these things fall out of use and it's hard to maintain. That's that's really where the architecture comes in. So if you plan the project right, really what you should get is front end code that's going to be solid. Now, often I've worked with a lot of teams translating 
designs from designers or agencies and this type of thing and handing them off to a back-end team kind of as an intermediary. And I found it very useful to build out anywhere from three to five major templates to show an example of how this style guide, or sometimes they're called pattern libraries, all these components all fit together to make this like main template, right? Like the key pages, the home page, and maybe the PLP and PDP, that kind of thing. And then what you do is you create this set of documentation for all the other components for all the different pages that haven't been created, right? Like alerts and, you know, error messages and all this type of thing, buttons, things that could be combined. Now, if you're building all of this with a sense of architecture in mind, with a sense of maintainability and a sense of structure, and you're kind of hitting all the right marks, the same CSS build pipeline and the same HTML should be used for both projects, right? And it's not really a sense of updating it or maintaining it because you have the same set of CSS being used on both projects, both the production machine and in your living style guide. However, when you start to update things, right, like you fundamentally change how one component works or you create a completely new component, all you have to do, and it's very simple, like I do this at the end of projects anyways, is you just kind of copy and paste an example and add it to the style guide. I mean, like how hard is that? It's like maybe a couple of minutes of work. And then you've got this up-to-date set of documentation. Like if you bring in someone new on the team, how are you going to teach them how everything's working? Like are they going to go through and look at all the source code for the SAS? I mean, it's kind of scary, but this is really what happens. Instead, you can point them to this clear set of documentation and say, these are all the components. Here are some of the major templates. This is how we work here, right? And you've got a clear set of documentation for new people on the team. If you expand your team, if you have to hire a completely new team or outsource the work, it's it's a very useful thing to, to maintain. What kind of company is in the sweet spot for benefiting from this kind, this level of uh, collaboration or process or structure? Because it's not, you know, it's certainly not like a solo endeavor because that's sort of it, the the collaborations implicit, right? You've got one developer is doing everything or one designer is doing everything or a hybrid. But like at what point does it become seriously beneficial? I actually want to jump in quickly though and say that I think it is beneficial even for one. That's I start every like site that I build with a page very much like what he described. We have put a form on it. We put all the different types of content on it. And I like come up with all my CSS components and HTML components out of that. And then we build the rest of the site um, based off that template. So even if it is just me building it. Okay, fair enough. But hiring James to do it. (laughs) Sure. So like, is it advantageous for one person? I think it can be a little bit diminishing returns. I think it's still a good thing. It, and it's something I think about myself, right? You know, I'm kind of a solo uh, business founder and this kind of thing. But I think as soon as you start to have a team of people or a team that you're going to start outsourcing development to, and I think this is the same type of benefit that you get from using a front-end framework like Bootstrap or Zurb Foundation or UIKit. So if you're just Getting started with your project, right? So you've got a SaaS app and you're building this out. A lot of people use something like Bootstrap, right? And I mean, the design looks good enough and they get it going. But the benefit is with using something like Bootstrap is that the team can all be 
kind of on the same playing field. You have a, like a common set of documentation, a common way of working that everyone can start to work with. And so it's the same thing with a design system, right? And if you have a design system and if you have a front end framework, they're going to really be the same types of benefits because you're working from a common set of documentation, a common set of, you know, documentation. It's, it's really going to be beneficial. So I think the sweet spot is, you know, companies who are doing, you know, relatively regular large UX changes, right? Doing a redesign, like say every year, every couple of years, that's something that really hits the sweet spot or a team that's about to do this, right? And and it's any anywhere where you have a team of developers and some sort of design resource that could even just be one designer designing out the whole site because the benefits of the design system actually benefit the engineering team much more so than, than the design team, right? Because the designs have more or less been finished. Now, the other advantage to building this type of thing too is you can do it iteratively. So you can... You know, you were talking about doing layout work in in Quark. And so, you know, on the web, what you can do is create a scaffolding, which is kind of a simple layout for a design. And this is often looking like a basic framework, like foundation, just some simple, you know, boxes and forms and things like that. You can actually start to build that out and have someone thinking about what are the CSS classes we're going to use. And so you can actually start to build that out on the back end. And the HTML is going to be kind of locked down. Right. But it's not going to look visually exactly like the final product. And then you can go through in another pass and then kind of add visual refinement. So I think that's really the sweet spot. Any sort of team environment where you're looking at doing a redesign. I think when you're just doing kind of day to day maintenance mode, it's something that like maybe you should do, but you're not going to really feel that pain until you have to like make a large set of changes with a strict deadline. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Mm, yeah, perfect answer. So, James, <clears throat> let's think about the, the person who doesn't get the benefit of your direct involvement in a project like this. On the on the development side of things, are there are there just simple things that developers can do to to make it less frustrating to work with designers or easier or you know improve communication or what have you maybe not like new processes but just you know different ways of communicating yeah i think you know i actually went through this process myself a little bit and sometimes i think because i'm between both worlds i can be a little bit abrasive amongst uh designers <laughs> when, when working with designs because i tend to be the person who will shut you know, shut down designs with rationality or ask for examples of it in the real world. You know, I'm not uh, looking to reinvent the wheel and that kind of thing. But uh, recently I commissioned uh, a logo redesign with a designer and I actually never spoke to this designer in person at all. Right. We did everything remotely and, and they're based out of the UK and they, and they did a fantastic job. And I think, you know, one of the things is having like a little bit of a common set of language to use to talk about design, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll give a, a good thing to maybe check out for developers wanting to build that up a little bit, uh, that kind of skill set. But just just knowing how to communicate with a designer, you know, like if you're a developer, like you have a certain terminology to discuss things. Like imagine you couldn't use any acronyms to describe 
some work that someone's doing on the web. Like, I think it would be challenging, right, to just use like, you know, like, say, the 200 most common words in in English right. to describe how they're supposed to do, like, you know, their next story. Um, I think it's the same kind of thing. So one is having a little bit of that language. I think the other thing is uh, being able to kind of quantify your feelings. So in in this example, he, he had a really great process. And so I talked to him about my company and what I do and this type of thing. And then he came back and gave me a bunch of different logos that were just kind of generic logos and said, which ones do you like? Right. And so the way I responded to this is I recorded a screencast and I just kind of went through them and talked about them out loud. Now I didn't just go, Oh yeah. Yeah. The red one. I like it. This one. I don't like this one sucks, but I had to kind of get more specific about it. And I think this is where it's really important to communicate with designers. I would say, I really like this logo because you know, I'm really interested in this idea of aviation or, you know, I like the idea of speed. I like how it, this logo is kind of embodying the, the idea of an airplane. Like, I think that's really cool. It feels like it's moving. So there's kind of this sense of motion. So so being more descriptive about why I like something or why I dislike something, I think really helped. And so this whole process, if you can imagine developing a logo, was he would send me this set and I would kind of respond in like a five, 10 minute screencast talking about things. But I made a point to kind of be much more specific about why I like something or why it didn't. And and I think from a design standpoint, your fear is that someone will say, like, we want to make this design more bold. Like, I don't know, Jonathan, if you ever got this in your layout for Quark, but like, we want it more bold. It's got to be bolder, right? And make it pop. You, make it yeah, pop. Make it pop. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I used to work at a, a music magazine called Pulse Magazine that was part of uh, Tower Records. So uh, wow. I used to see this stuff all the time. And uh, yeah, kind of a blast Flash, from the past. Flashback, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you would you would hear this kind of like, like we got to make it bolder. And so then like you're a designer, you make it bolder. And they're like, well, now the rest of it's got to pop. And so like eventually, like everything's like, you know, like size 40 font, everything's bold, like your design is ruined, right? It looks terrible. It looks like, a, you know, advertisement for, you know, I don't know, furniture in the newspaper or something. So you got to be kind of descriptive and not use words like it's got to be bold. It's got to be like you have to kind of talk more, uh, not super feeling stuff, but just kind of quantify what those things are now he came back and gave me sketches and I had some ideas of like what I thought it might be the logo but then eventually I kind of got sold on some other ideas so they were communicating back with me in a way to explain the rationale of their decisions right and I thought you know one it's really useful to find a designer that's comfortable working with someone from an engineering background someone who can span the gap so to speak because sometimes you'll find designers who like they want to get feedback in some certain way. And if you're not comfortable talking that way, it might be really difficult. Now, I thought the screencast worked really well because I gave them feedback. It was visual. I talked about it and they could see what I was talking about. But they also had like a record. It's like the ultimate paper trail. So every time I gave them a round of feedback, they could always refer back to it. And so I didn't have to get on the phone. I think probably the worst thing to do is just to get on a phone meeting and just go, oh, yeah, no, this is all right. OK, good. You know, and and you spout off a bunch of things and then usually people are taking notes. Often people don't record meetings. Often people aren't having necessarily video and recording the video. And so after the meeting, it's lost and then it's up for interpretation. So I found that doing a screencast was a really great way to give actionable feedback. And then I asked them, do you have any questions you know, about the feedback? And 
and we kind of just went back and forth like that. So we never talked. <laughs> we only talked via email and I sent only video over there and I'm really happy with the way that the logo turned out. It was a really fantastic job. I cannot agree more with that approach. I, we do that. I, I'm the CTO of a SaaS that, you know, and we have got designer, developer, and the, at times outside developers and the, the asynchrony of a, a, a screen recording is, I, I can't believe not everybody does this. It's so amazing because it's actually better than a live screen share because the designer can't get, or, or either person, the developer or the designer, whoever, the person who's getting the feedback can't get defensive. It, there's like no discussion. It's like, here's, here's my response, you know, and, but it has all of the benefits of this massive information transfer because you get the visual and the audio at the same time. This is how we do our bug reporting. This is how we release new features to QA. Screencast, 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 screencast. It's like they could be 30 seconds long. They could be five minutes. They're really short. Uh, but the amount of information transmitted in a very small asynchronous way, a very small amount of time in an asynchronous way is, uh, there's nothing better than it that, that I've seen. So just uh, sort of piling on there with that approach. I think everybody should do that for everything from design review to bug fixing. I do it if a client asks what seems an obvious question about how to use their site too. I just throw grab a quick screencast and put it right in their dashboard so they don't I always tell them so they're like they can find it and then the next person they can just point them to this screencast as well, but mostly so they don't bug me again about it. Yeah, that's how I started doing it. I didn't want to keep answering the same question. And then I was like, why am I even bothering typing, you know, it's just like boom, video done. I've used that same thing for handing off work in the past to clients where I'll, I'll do that asynchronously, sort of explain uh, the thinking behind certain decisions that were made, and then they can kind of digest it, and, and then we can have a conversation. I feel like the, the least ideal feedback I've ever gotten is like in the heat of the moment when someone's seeing something for the first time. So I started doing that to avoid that kind of feedback. I want to pile on with one other thing that James brought up that it, that is something that I do all the time, which is uh, I'll almost, sometimes I've actually explicitly created a glossary, but other times it's just a couple of terms that need defining. But uh, early in a project, one of the very first things I do is get all parties, the developers, the designers, and the business people to agree on terms. So, you know, if... If, if one person is re, uh, referring to a carousel as a slideshow, we pick a term. What are we going to call this? If somebody is referring to, um, oh, I don't know, the header as head, no, that's a bad one. But like carousel and slideshow came up recently, so it's top of mind. But it's like, what are we calling this thing? Because uh, gallery is a different thing to dev than a carousel or a slideshow. They're three completely different things. But if the designer or the business keeps interchanging these words that are not synonymous to everyone, it's going to cause, cause a lot of frustration. And in fact, it, it, I've seen it get the dev team, for in a case like this, to start to make jokes behind the back of the other involved parties like, oh, uh, they don't even know what they're talking about and that sort of thing. 
and it uh, it leads to that sort of ambiguity really is like I find it corrosive to the project. So when when I am in a meeting and I hear one team use a word and then another team say it back to them but use a different word, I'll like I will interrupt and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. what what are we talking like what word are we going to use for this? Because if we can't even agree on what the components of the website are, then it's going to be really hard moving forward. So let's agree that we're going to call this this thing this and then forevermore I'll be vocabulary cop and be like, whoa, 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 you're using the wrong word for that. And and really call people on it. And I've I've had clients thank me on multiple occasions for doing exactly that, which is merely getting everybody on the same page with the words they use. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. And I think with your glossary, I'm just taking it a step further with this idea of having a set of documentation about the components. Really, it's a tool, not just for development to build out the site, but for the entire organization to talk about the product, right? So you're not calling it, like you're saying, like a, a gallery or a carousel or a slide. You're calling it one specific thing. And that way, there's no miscommunication. You know, there's no like laughing behind people's backs. Like every, everyone knows what to call it. And I think it's a great thing. We are headed towards picks. Um, James, what... Is there some other important aspect of of this discussion that we haven't touched on yet or some sort of something something we've missed? Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about a free course that I've got that I think if you're interested in this topic and want to go further, but I'll throw out one more thing. And this is a book that was recommended to me and I've read it myself. It's fantastic. And it's called The Non-Designer's Design Book. And it's in the fourth edition and it's by Robin Williams, not the comedian, but a, but another Robin Williams. And it gives you a great introduction to some design fundamental fundamentals and some of the terminology. And it'll just help you to understand, like you'll find that if you're using something like Bootstrap or, or even just creating your Microsoft Word documents or whatever you're doing, you'll have some ideas of how you can approach design in a simple way that just kind of make things look a little bit nicer. Very nice. So um, let's see, before we get to picks, James, how can uh, the folks at home learn more about what you're doing or dig deeper into this topic? Yeah, I think th the best way they can dig deeper is they can go to designsystemscrashcourse.com and they can sign up for a free email course and learn more about the benefits of design systems and what I like to call design systems engineering because I want to span the gap from design to engineering and how to get started with this in your organization. And so if they do that, they'll get a three day email course. And the more important thing is you'll be on my list and I treat my list kind of like a laboratory and there they're going to learn more about me, what I'm all about, how I operate. And this is really the best way because all you need to do is give your email address and it's going to start a longer relationship. And then later, you can decide whether I'm worth paying attention to or not. So that's what I encourage people to do. Go to designsystemscrashcourse.com and sign up for that free email course. Very nice. Um, Curtis. This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. 
Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Maxwood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in programming or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current in a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbieremoteconf.com. And sign up for that free email course. Very nice. Um, Curtis, you got any picks for us this week? Sure. As I was saying before we officially recorded, I had a, an issue and my whole computer went down today. And instead of sticking with Ubuntu, I actually installed Elementary OS, which is beautiful and it's a derivative of Ubuntu. So everything that works with it, uh, Ubuntu should work with Elementary and it is beautiful and faster uh, than the latest long-term release of Ubuntu. Well, that's my pick today. Nice. Jonathan, how about you? Uh, first, I will recommend a book from Erica Hall, published by a list, uh, sorry, a book apart, called Just Enough Research, which I think is critical. I think it kind of underlies everything we've been talking about today, which is that, you know, naturally you want your design team and your development team to be on the same page and being able to communicate smoothly and not creating a lot of rework. But at the end of the day, the end user is the person whose life needs to be improved. So making decisions about how to do that, I think is pretty important. And I'm a big fan of research in that regard. So you might want to check out that slim volume from a list apart uh, to talk about that. And the other thing I want to talk about, since we were talking about uh, recording screencasts and, and bouncing them back and forth, a, I use two different tools for this. They're both um, slight, basically the same thing. They're slightly different, but you could use either one. Uh, DropShare and Cloud App both have really simple interface for quickly recording short screencasts with audio. Um, you can do them as HD video, as standard definition video, or as GIFs. And they just upload automatically to you know, whatever provider you pick, depending on which one you pick. But it makes it really easy for teams to collaborate in this kind of asynchronous audio video way that we were just talking about at the end there. So I think DropShare and Cloud App are both really, really cool. And that's it for me. I agree. I'm a uh, DropShare <clears throat> user and also think it's awesome. Um, I've got two picks before we get to James' picks. Um, I, before, when we were starting the show, I don't know if people were annoyed at me for doing this, but I was uh, putting, um, address labels on thank you cards. I've started sending thank you cards to people who buy, uh, my book, the positioning manual. And I get those printed at Vistaprint and it is, I don't know, like I, I don't have a lot of tolerance actually for stuff that's supposed to make things easier, but doesn't. I think Vistaprint does a decent job of making it easy and affordable for a guy like me who's not a designer, who just opened Keynote one day, and or actually I think Pages is what I used to do at Apple Pages, 
and just designed my own thank you card and then had uh, uh, now it's over a thousand of these that I've had printed up by Vistaprint. And uh, so you just, you know, upload your design as a PDF and choose what kind of paper you want it printed on and so forth. And uh, the result is, I think, great. And the price was right. So that's that's one pick is Vistaprint. And then um, at, at some point in this conversation, I was reminded of this hilarious scene in a show that I've not heard a lot of other people know about called Slings and Arrows. It was a Canadian uh, television series that I think ran for two series, two seasons. Um, just it's a comedy about a Shakespearean theater in Canada. So there's not that many Canadian jokes because it's uh, Canadians making TV about Canadians, but uh, still it's kind of a nice slice of what I imagine Canadian culture must be like wrapped in a a pretty funny um, comedy. Um, And uh, yeah, there was a scene with this creative agency, this fictional creative agency called uh, Frog Hammer that uh, just reminded me of every... um, (laughs) caricature of every uh, designer ever. Not at all fair to designers. And I know we've really uh, kind of picked on designers on this uh, episode of the show. It's because we're all not designers. I think we've done that. Anyway, uh, Slings and slings and Arrows, really funny show. Um, I think it's largely family-friendly stuff, and uh, that might be worth checking out. James, how about you? Any picks? Yeah, I think I, think I had one, but I'll just repeat it. Um, my pick is the non-designers design book, fourth edition, by Robin Williams, the author, not the comedian. Awesome, thank you. And then just one more time again, remind folks where they can learn more about this whole design systems engineering thing. Sure thing. Uh, you want to go to designsystemscrashcourse.com. Awesome. Well, James, thanks for joining us today. Really uh, enjoyed hearing your perspective on all of this. Um, That's it for our show, folks. Uh, We'll catch you next time. Bye. Ciao. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.